This is the 966, episode 69. Richard, hello. Hey, how are you? you? Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, I know, in a few days. And uh, it's, it's, uh, it's been a good year for the 966. It's been an awesome year for the 966. And Richard, this is actually our second 966 Christmas Spectacular. Um, we did one last year. Um, and... Yeah, we're doing another one this year. We've got a show filled with presents for our listeners and viewers. A really fun and interesting conversation coming up with Todd Albert Nims. Just an awesome combo. He's a Aramco expat and now a producer and filmmaker in Saudi Arabia. We will be talking about Saudi Arabia's trillion-dollar economy in 2022. Some exciting stuff going on in the green hydrogen space as well. Finishing up this week with a full slate of topics for our yellow segment, Richard. Since we know Santa is watching, especially at this time of year, we ask first-time listeners and viewers to take a second away from the Christmas cookies and candy canes. Hit the subscribe button. <laughs> I can't get the, you can't even get through this read without like, giggling. Um, that would make for a very happy holiday present for us at the 966. So thanks to everyone yeah, out there. Don't get a lump of coal in your stocking. Hit that subscribe button. Yep. <laughs> of course, there's a lot of non-Christians that are, are listening to the show and they're just completely like, what offended are you talking now. about? Yeah. <laughs> so, so, in it anyway, despite whatever I say. Let's get going. What do you think? Uh, Richard, Let's what's your it. one big thing this week? Um, I think it's kind of a matchup. And, uh, you know, we come to the end of the year, 2022. We talk a lot about on this show uh, the U.S.-Saudi relationship. And obviously we talk about how we think that the U.S. Uh, approach should be updated and should evolve a little bit. 2022 was a big year for this. And by that, this, I mean, sort of a refashioning, reconsideration, reevaluation of the relationship. And a lot of it, to be honest, has been forced by the Saudis themselves. Um, and I think uh, it, it just run down a few things. I think, you know, th this, I think there's been a, a, a bubbling resentment on the part of the Saudis on uh, the how the relationship is viewed in the U.S. and how their I guess how the interactions go with the U.S. and they see themselves differently. I think this came to the fore with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and um, you know, on, from our perspective, there are a lot of good things involved with that. There's no good things involved with that. I apologize, but what you saw out of that was an essentially a revitalization of of NATO. Um a U.S. coming closer and renewing ties with its traditional European allies, all to the good, in my opinion. I think we're on the right side of this conflict, trying to help Ukraine against this uh, illegal invasion by a, a neighboring country. Um, so, you know, from our perspective, it's kind of black and white. You know, we're doing the right thing. We're on the right side. Everybody join in and, and, and line up behind us. For the rest of the world, it's not black and white. And Saudi Arabia is sort of, uh, you know, example number one of this. It has close relationship with Russia. Um, you know, it considers um, it, it considers its economic future and you know well-being its priority, and and severing ties with Russia in support of a, a U.S. or a Western effort against Russia doesn't make sense to them. Likewise reducing or mitigating ties with China, the second largest economy in the world and the largest, uh, you know, largest purchaser of 
of Saudi oil and a country they have close to $90 billion in trade with doesn't make sense. So anyway, that that invasion of, of Ukraine, I think, forced a reassessment uh, because everyone, of course, was upset because there was hesitation and hemming and hawing and hedging. You know, it's got to be one of the leading words of the year. Uh, on, in terms of the U.S.-Saudi relationship. So, you know, followed up July, uh, Joe Biden visited KSA. Um, this December, just earlier this month, uh, uh, Xi is in, um, uh, of China is in Saudi Arabia. MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, did a number of regional tours, Egypt, Jordan, Jordan Turkey, his first EU trip, Greece and France. Um a Qatar World Cup was very big in the region. And I think most people in the region sort of took it on as their own. This is ours, even though it was based in Doha, everyone felt support for it and were enthusiastic for it. So I guess we come to the end of the year and it's been a big year. I think it's been a big year in terms of reassessing. And, and the reason I wanted to do this, I wanted to start with the war in Ukraine as the first harbinger that change was required and that the Saudi Arabia looks at the world differently than we might anticipate they look at it and end it with um, an economic sort of benchmark. And that is that Saudi Arabia's nominal GDP in 2022 will tick over into the 1 trillion area. So its nominal GDP will, will be over 1 trillion for the first time in its history. And I think this is interesting if we look at things because Saudi Arabia, one of their their one of their preferences is to be treated as a middle power. And what is a middle power? Uh, I don't really have a definition of that, but let's look at in terms of uh, nominal GDP. Let's look at who the middle powers are, and this would be in terms of ranking in the world's ten to twenty nominal GDP. Saudi Arabia is 18th there, but let me run through it. 10th is South Korea, 11th is Russia, 12th Brazil, 13th Australia, 14th Spain, 15th Mexico, 16th Indonesia, 17th Netherlands, 18th Saudi Arabia, 19th Turkey, 20th Switzerland. Every one of these countries is a member of the GU except for Switzerland, who, who you know is not a signatory to the EU, therefore is not a member of the G20. Um, every one of these countries have a G GDP nominal GDP of between one and $2 trillion. Uh, Saudi Arabia is at number 18. They're hoping by 2030, they get to 15. My point is, is that if you look at these countries, Australia, Brazil, Netherlands, Spain, Mexico, I'd say we interact with Saudi Arabia differently than we do with a lot of these countries. Obviously, you know, when you're talking about a, a European country like the Netherlands or Spain, there's a long shared history and, and the alliance is, you know, has some depth to it. Um, but you can say the same thing about Saudi Arabia. I mean, Saudi Arabia has been an, has been an ally and a, and a partner uh, for 90 years with, with the U.S., you know, and you could argue that Saudi Arabia in many ways, certainly in terms of its, its, uh, uh, mineral resources, oil and others, you know, is globally uh, more influential than, say, I don't know, Mexico. Um, 
you know, obviously geostrategically, Saudi Arabia is especially important. But I guess what I'm getting to is, is you know, Ukraine at the beginning, uh, a trillion dollar economy at the end. Saudi Arabia wants to be looked at and treated and interacted with in a different way. Uh, you and I know that we've heard this all year from key Saudis. And I, I hark back to a June article in Politico where uh, Princess Rima bin Bandar, the uh, Saudi ambassador to the U.S., basically said, long gone are the days when U.S.-Saudi relationship could be defined by the outdated and reductionist oil for security paradigm. The world has changed. Um, and, you know, the relationship should change too. So that's sort of my Christmas close. It's been a monumental year in terms of relationship. I think the U.S. is dawning on the, it's dawning on the U.S. that maybe we should interact with Saudi Arabia differently. But certainly from Saudi Arabia's perspective, I think they declared themselves by not cutting out Russia after the uh, uh, events in Ukraine and by actively pursuing and growing their relationship with China. Um, they want a new relationship with the U.S. in a multipolar world, and, and they want to be seen as a middle power. And if you look at their you know, global influence and you look at their GDP, it, it's a fair claim. Yeah, I mean, the it's, it's that was good, Richard. I, I think that when you look at the war in Ukraine, it's like what you see with the war in Ukraine is you sort of associate it with the energy paradigm and Saudi, Russia and OPEC plus reality, too, is that Saudi Arabia doesn't support Russia's war in Ukraine and in fact has given a significant amount of money and has done um, some mediating between the two sides as well. It's not like it is supporting the um, Russian invasion of Ukraine, but it is prioritizing its own interests over what Russia is doing in Ukraine. And I think you said it really well, Richard. It's very black and white to us what we see going on in Ukraine. But for Saudi Arabia, there's a, a really strong economic interest in maintaining the integrity of OPEC+. Plus. Um, I mean, for obvious reasons, that right. that cartel must be intact in order to be able to have some sort of control over prices of oil. So I think that's a, a really good point. Um, breaking down the GDP growth, Richard, I think um, we, we'll talk a little bit about this later as well. But oil related GDP um, grew 14.2% in the third quarter, uh, a little bit under the estimate, but the non oil economy in the, in the third quarter of this year in Saudi Arabia grew 6%. And that was above the anticipated 5.6%. Really, that's the figure that matters most for Saudi Arabia, because 10, 20, 30 years from now, obviously, oil will be significantly less important, maybe not important at all, depending on um, you know innovations in the energy sector. Saudi Arabia needs to have its economy and its and its you know have its annual GDP figures not completely dependent on the price of oil, and that's what obviously Vision Twenty Thirty is all about: is getting the economy to be running on things that are not related to oil. Um, I think when we talk about how the U.S. looks at Saudi Arabia as an emerging power, um, there's a great piece from Hussein Ibish, who was, is it Ibish or Ibish? I messed that up. Um, I say Ibish. It's Ibish. And he said Ibish. <laughs> Apologies. From Hussein Ibish, who sort of discusses how little known to the media and to everyone else, after the sort of spat over OPEC Plus's oil policies, the Biden administration and Saudi Arabia have sort of quietly started working together again 
Um, really great piece. We had it in our newsletter this week. We will send it out or I'll put it in this segment's show notes, but worth a read from Bloomberg. He joined us on the program a few months ago now, Richard, after the Biden meeting with uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman and King Salman in Jeddah, sort of had him on as, as a trifecta of guests talking about what was going on. Um, just a great piece, but sort of talks about how the U.S.-Saudi relationship is, again, not to the not celebrated in the media right now, but it's sort of, you know, pursuing uh, going forward. But um, I guess I want to say, though, that one thing that's interesting is the reason why I feel like Saudi Arabia is not treated the same way as some of these other countries uh, like Spain and the Netherlands and, and Mexico is because it is not a democracy. And so the debate can be, well, how much should that matter and how we relate to other countries? Some, and especially on the left, would say it, it matters a lot. Um, you know, Spain and the Netherlands and Mexico don't have the unfortunate black eye of having 15 of the 19 hijackers from 9-11 be from their country or, you know, even going back to the oil embargo in the 70s. Um, so there, it, it, the U.S.-Saudi relationship is long and, and deep, but there are ups and downs. And some of the downs that market are, are really stand out to Americans as significant. Um, but I also feel like just having been there recently and having guests on our show every week, Richard, it, it feels like this spat in the media and the spat that everybody is talking about between the U S and Saudi Arabia, like it doesn't go that deep when it comes to person to person relationships. And so I didn't even really come together to a full point here, but I guess I'm just, <laughs> my, my, I guess what my reaction to this is the U S Saudi relationship is very complicated and always will be, but having a complicated relationship means there's a lot there to, discuss and way over between the two sides. And you just can't argue with the fact that Saudi Arabia had an amazing year economically. And if it continues to invest in the non-oil GDP sector, and it is big time in a significant way, then this will continue to bear fruits in the next few years for them. Yeah, those are good points. And we need, we will have Hussein back on the show uh, shortly, I hope. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's not, it's not a clear cut thing. My my point, and I think it's it's useful to, to add in the fact that it is an authoritarian state, and 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 uh, we do have this history of of uh, particular points of conflict. Obviously, Jamal Khashoggi being the latest. Um, but you see, the my point is really, I think that twenty twenty two. It became clear that the relation became became clear to both sides. Uh, that the relationship needs to be updated and merits updating. And you see, uh, you you referenced the Biden administration, and obviously there was all this outrage about the uh, October, early October OPEC plus decision to uh, reduce quotas by 2 million barrels a day. A lot of, you know, threats were, were made, you know, a lot of accusations flung, um, you know, but the Biden administration quite pointedly did not do anything of note and downplayed it and intentionally downplayed it. <clears throat> and I, I guess what I'm saying is I think 2022 will be a good benchmark for if we're going to see change in the relationship going forward and a uh, decision by the U.S. to engage in ways that are not strictly based on uh, security for oil. I think that discussion began this year. That discussion came out in the open and became uh, front forward this year. Before it might have been behind doors, it might have been you know 
a nurse grievance by the Saudis. It might not have been voiced. It has been voiced in 2022, and it's been made clear, both by words and actions, that the Saudis want a different relationship, want to be treated differently, and uh, absolutely want to be partners with the U.S., absolutely want to you know, have U.S. security umbrella, but also wants a more deeper, fuller, broad, comprehensive engagement with the U.S. Yep. Uh, and, and that came to the fore loud and clear in 2022. Mm-hmm. Richard, my one big thing this week, green hydrogen. There was some news that came out this week on Saudi Arabia's efforts to be a world leader in green hydrogen. The kingdom is investing heavily in the production of green hydrogen, which is a clean and renewable energy source that is generated through the electrolysis of water using renewable energy sources such as solar or wind power. What makes it green hydrogen is the green energy put into power this process. That means for Saudi Arabia, solar or wind power, blue hydrogen is different. It means the hydrogen is created using natural gas and then carbon capture storage is used to take the carbon out of the atmosphere. And instead of um, just not existing at all, it is being stored. So it's sort of green, but not quite like what Saudi Arabia is doing. Saudi Arabia is early on in this space as of mid 2021. It's pretty much the latest figure I could find for this. Um, Green hydrogen made up 0.1% of overall hydrogen production. So it's still very early and they are looking to be a leader in this market. Good news came from both the supply side and the receiving side of this marketplace they're trying to set up. European economic powerhouse Germany has said it is It hopes to import green ammonia from Saudi Arabia at a terminal to be open in 2026. This was according to a report in the UAE-based The National. Ammonia can be used to make hydrogen. It's a clean fuel type if generated in a green way. Ammonia is now the favored mechanism to transport hydrogen over long distances. A first German import terminal devoted to hydrogen and related products is to be built in Hamburg by U.S. company Air Products, which we'll talk about in a second, and Germany's Mabinaft. Um, another couldn't even get to 69 <laughs> episodes in a row and I've managed to mispronounce something. I'm sure I mispronounced that. Um, those two companies announced that this last Thursday. As we know, Air Products is also heavily involved on the supply side of this equation in Saudi Arabia, along with Neom and Aqua Power. And on that side of this, there was also some news. Air Products, along with Neom and Aqua Power, enter, enter, entered into a deal in July 2020 Uh, This was the announcement of the deal to produce ammonia at Neon for export. Flash forward two years later, almost three years later, um, the three industrial heavyweights created the Neon Green Hydrogen Company and announced yesterday that it had inked facility agreements with local, regional, and international banks and Saudi Arabia's SIDF, that's the Saudi Industrial Development Fund, which is part of the Ministry of Industry and Mineral Resources to finance the construction of the plant. NGHC's mega plant will, quote, integrate up to four gigawatts of solar and wind energy, which is a lot, to produce up to 1.2 million tons of green ammonia, uh, ammonia, translating up to 600 tons per day of carbon-free hydrogen. Once the plant at NEOM is operational by 2026, which is coming up, 100% of the green hydrogen produced will be available for global export in the form of ammonia through an exclusive long-term agreement with Air Products. The Saudi government is investing heavily in the development of this sector because, um, I'm sorry, is investing heavily in the development of the green hydrogen sector with a goal of producing 6.5 million tons of hydrogen by 2030. So Richard, I guess this is my one big thing because 
time really flies. And <laughs> I remember discussing the AquaPower Air Products Neom mashup with you when it was first announced. And here we are, December 22nd, 2022. And we've got some financing for the export of ammonia. And we have a buyer in Germany, um, which is major, major developments in this sector so far. So we were just talking in the previous segment about diversification away from oil. This is one way in which they're doing it, and they're doing it right now. And and they just uh, just did a shipment, first shipment to South Korea off the um, the East Coast, Saudi Aramco of blue ammonia. Mm -hmm. uh, again, you know, trying to prove this is viable, uh, and and you know something that you know, is going to be, a, a, you know, something that's going to be economically feasible. And, and as of yet, it, it isn't at scale. Um, it's interesting to get the Germans involved. That was a good one, Lucian. And, and I don't really have much to add. Uh, Europeans, Germans in particular, are really, really um, investing a lot in the hydrogen economy. And, and hopefully will be good markets for Saudi Arabia somewhere down the line. Germany just established uh, 550 million euro funds to you know add on to their investments already <clears throat> and you see it in agreements like this so yeah saudi arabia is positioning itself to try and produce um you know again commercially viable uh, amounts of blue and green hydrogen we talked uh in a previous one big thing about the the proximity you know and mbs visited greece twice this year uh, but the proximity of NEOM to Greece, for example, which of course is an EU uh, country and is linked into all the power networks in the EU. So the, the logistics of getting it there are not that uh, overwhelming. Um, I think, you know, there's going to be a lot of uh, challenges and obstacles and things to be overcome between now and Aquapower and I mean and Air Products, you know, producing hydrogen out of neon, but they're well on their way, and and it's exciting to see. Yeah, it's a good pull with the uh, South Korea thing. You use the term Richard a lot on this this program that I love. Loss leader. They're proving it out. It's expensive now for them to do it. Uh, what seems like that that's what seem what seems is changing right now is that there's customers for this stuff. I mean, because it's not the cheapest way to produce and to make hydrogen. I mean, oil would be or, or natural gas would be without the, right. the the gray hydrogen would be. But um, now there's real interest in spending the premium to make sure that it, it is green, which is very interesting. Um, Richard, I also want to note that I think that your Saudi Greece deep dive was my favorite one big thing of yours um, over the last year. <laughs> we should be uh, we should sort of do a, a Hall of Fame New Year's spectacular we go back and yeah best of, best um, of. <laughs> but that was really good because that that sort of strung together four different things that had existed in my brain and to see it all come together you sort of see oh there's a ton of strategic thinking behind these decisions going on especially when it comes to greece so well yeah, it is and it's it's also interesting to watch this gambit uh, you know because you know, blue hydrogen especially what they're doing at al jafura and, and other things with natural gas um is best on, you know based on carbon capture technology that although Saudi Arabia seems to have the geological structures to deal with it, uh, it's still carbon capture at scale is not a a you know a a a uh, slam dunk. Mm -hmm. uh, likewise, um, uh, the electrolyzers that they use and they'll be planning on using in um, I think it's Thyssenkrupp, uh, 
uh, electrolyzers, German electrolyzers that they're going to be using in Neom, you know, again, at scale, it's not a slam dunk. So, you know, hurdles still need to be uh, cleared. And, uh, but in the process, and I think this is part of their gambit in the process, they, sh- you know, they're, they're hoping to learn and gain a lot of technological expertise and really maybe become leaders in the field in both things like carbon capture and hydrogen and, and, and all these, these, what they think are future technologies. So it's just, it, it, you know, as we've talked about, and we agree, it's just so fascinating to watch and kind of fun to watch these bets that they're putting down on the table. Yes. And it's going to be interesting to see how they all turn out. Yes. And uh, as you were just talking, Richard, I was thinking a little bit about the announcement from the U.S. Department of Energy um, regarding major breakthroughs in, you know, cold fusion or non-reactive, uh, well, reactive fusion, but um, sort of the new technology sure. that they're pumping out at the Lawrence Livermore Lab in California, which I obviously have a very small, limited uh, grasp on. But there's, in addition to the bets they're putting down, there are a lot of potential game changers out there. Yeah. Innovative stuff in battery storage, for example, <clears throat> or this cold fusion technology. I mean, we're leaving the carbon in the past in a way like we know we're going to leave that. But what is ahead is many different solutions. And it's sort of unknown as to which ones will work out. Saudi Arabia is betting bit big here on hydrogen. They have other things in the other irons in the fire as well. Uh, but I just was thinking like, well, what if this cold fusion technology is absolutely just totally a game changer. We don't know. And we won't know for a while. So yeah, you can't it, just sit on your hands. Yeah. Yeah. And they, they, they put it out decades, but this is a big thing, but you know, to return to your beginning, uh, which was hydrogen. And that's the, that's the attraction of hydrogen. It's a dense fuel and it's an actual, as opposed to, you know, batteries and other things um, or other renewables. It, it's, it's a fuel that's dense enough to replace, you know, current, uh, you know, oil, requirements in the transportation industrial sectors you know so it's a viable replacement for these things if you can get it right and if you can get it commercially commercially viable okay well we took it a little tour a tour around there um <laughs> let's get to our really excellent conversation with todd albert nims just a great guy richard this was a good one this is the 966 We're excited to be speaking now with Todd Albert Nims. Todd is a creative producer and writer-director heavily involved in Saudi Arabia's cinema and entertainment development. He co-produced the major feature film Born a King, which I finally saw for the first time on my flight home from Riyadh a few days ago. It is fantastic. Shot in London and in Saudi Arabia, which broke box office records for the Gulf. He held the film producer position at the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia's state-of-the-art hub for inspiring creativity and global culture, Ithra. Uh, for six years, where he established the kingdom's first cinema and assisted in launching the first Saudi Film Days program. Really cool. Uh, Mr. Nims also owns an entertainment company based in Riyadh. He also sits as chairman of the Arts, Arts, Culture, and Entertainment Committee for AmCham KSA. Todd, welcome to the 966. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Heard lots about the 966. Yeah, I, I was delighted when I reached out to you and you said, oh, yeah, we I know all about it. So I hope it's good things. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it's reminding me of uh, I'm, I'm thinking like uh, there's probably a phrase that's going to start popping up here. Like, what's the 966? 
kind of like give give me the info on what's going on. You know? <laughs> that's true. I'm, I'm going to start that. Yeah. I'm going to start that trend. That's, that's new. Know, that's new. That comes up. <laughs> it's an updated. What, what's the four one one? Yeah, that's the nine six three. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's what I was thinking. The updated four one because no one uses four one one anymore. It's Google. So. Yeah, What's the 966? That's a genius. Awesome. <laughs> An early pr- uh, Christmas you're present welcome. for us, Richard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, here in That's the why they paid me the big bucks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and actually, Todd, uh, you know, it was time, I guess, we had sort of circled you. And I, I, and I mentioned when, when I invited you to, to, to join us on the 966 that, you know, I had you in mind very early because you're kind of a mythic figure. Um, and I wow. say that because we cover here sort of the 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 flowering of some of the art and culture scene in in Saudi Arabia over the last 5 years and we've had people on talk about the comedy scene we talk about cinema we regularly you know do our one big things and yellas on on artistic changes and i think you call it you refer to it as a new cycle um but it's kind of a fascinating when I say mythic figure, if you go back kind of things in the comedy scene, for example, and you go back to the, the early aughts, you know, 2008, 9, 10, 11, whatever, you were very much involved in the comedy scene, the underground comedy scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's what I mean. So if you took a picture of that a snapshot of that time, you know, Todd Albert Nims would be in there. Um, mm-hmm. Same thing with the cinema. Um, you, mm-hmm. you, one of the very first year, 2007, uh, you know, feature film really on Aramco Bratz, uh, was again, a, a sort of a groundbreaking thing that could be done and could be done commercially viably. And, and again, you go back to snapshot of the cinema and this is again, all pre vision 2030. And there is Todd Albert Nims in this picture <laughs> and, um, and you know you're trying now. It looks like you're doing the same thing with theater. Uh, you know, yeah. as 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 it grows and and it re sort of regenerates in, in Saudi Arabia, there is Todd Albert Nims right at the founding, sort of you, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and it it it's really been fascinating. And 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 what I, I'd hope you might do with us today is, you have a you're a you're a Ramco brat, and and maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Clearly, Saudi Arabia is in your DNA. Clearly, storytelling is in your DNA. And and I'd like to maybe if you could take us on a journey from your your time as an Aramco brat in the Dahran compound, which I've always thought would be an amazing place to grow up. I always thought it was like one big adventure camp for for kids. Um, and then you know you went to Colorado, University of Colorado, to study communications. You did a a, a a time at Harvard on storytelling. Uh, it's clearly been, you know, it's a big part of you. And, and obviously that's been now, you know, combined with Saudi Arabia. So maybe if you could take us on that journey out of Dahran, you know, to the U.S. and back to sort of be, like I said, a ground zero at these artistic renaissance for Saudi Arabia in so many ways across any number of, of sectors. Okay, wow. Well, I, I think... I have never had a better intro and felt more understood before I even started talking to what you guys just did right now. So my hat is off to you guys do your research. Wow. Impressive. Um, like I said, you're a mythic, you. you're a mythic figure. <laughs> yeah. um, so you, 
how early do you want me to so you want me to sort of sort of give you like wh- how i how i got into it or you want me to start where do you want me to start <laughs> exactly. well, talk, talk about you know, talk about again talk about your journey you know and and, and the, clearly this is meaningful to you and you want to tell stories and you think there's great stories in saudi arabia and and this all ha- what, what when did when did this first occur to you that you were sort of in a place that was really rich uh, and was it as a source for to feed your passion? It's interesting. So um, I think being born overseas in Saudi and uh, kind of growing up with that awareness of being, we, we were sort of here till I was five in Saudi, and then I left for five years, and then came back. Uh, and in the five in the five years I left, it was we were actually living at NASA Space Center, which which is like literally all my friends were astronauts. So it was like a different kind of thinking about the world as this huge place. And I mean, it really did at that age give me a perspective on how small we are. And so it's not like this unique place and then being in this place and then going back to Saudi. And then that's when the Gulf War broke out. So we kind of did this journey like there, then evacuated. And uh, all these little pieces kind of, of – I mean, even even the Gulf War, it made me see the world in a different perspective because it was kind of, in a way, a war is a big story. It's kind of this, you know, you become us versus them, and then you all kind of combine, and you see the power of kind of joining together, and then sort of that feeling, and then coming back to the U.S., and then sort of having to always be telling it. You know, people say, where are you from? You say, well, I'm American, but I was born in Saudi, and kind of always having to tell these stories, and then having to explain the Gulf War, for example. And uh, I remember the song of stand tall, stand proud, voices that care are crying out loud. This, <laughs> this this song that was made by Hollywood for the Gulf War and inside of right. learning it back then. And then sort of when I came to the States and sort of singing that to people and then people going, what are you, what are you singing? What are you talking about? And realizing, oh my God, that was a story just for us over there. It wasn't a story for the rest of the country. And just seeing kind of how that affects affected our lives it's funny i remember when that happened actually one of the very first things i thought when that happened when i came i, I was out in the desert in kofti which is on the border between kuwait and, uh, right. and saudi it was 10 and we were with these soldiers and and there was that song being played on monitors stand tall stand proud madonna and mike tyson all these people were singing this song for the soldiers and then there was like johnny's mom on there saying johnny we can't wait for you to come back and all these cuts in and out of like soldiers parents there's guys next to me grown men breaking down and crying and we just all felt this unity and then i remember coming to the states evacuating and being in a different part of texas victoria texas and um try people asking me and i'd be singing this song and thinking they were going to know what i was talking about and the moment they they had this blank look on their face and they said what are you what are you singing i didn't even think about myself first thing i thought was oh my god what about these soldiers that i've been i was thinking what would it be like for them to feel that you know come back and have this i was like oh my god it must be it's kind of like I think when people talk about PTSD and just like the right. different like the different reality of coming back. I kind of had that at an early age. And I think that that process of going back and forth and seeing the different kind of narratives and then seeing how much sort of culture and and the the story like societal stories and um how you know you, you hear growing, you know, the story of religions like for example of christianity and then islam and i had a buddhist friend and hearing those stories and then later on kind of um i don't know you know sort of getting into indigenous culture because i 
lived abroad. I was I went to university in Colorado, as you said, but then I did a year abroad in Australia and I kind of right. did Aboriginal studies. Then I was like, did this whole year out and I started living with Aborigines. I did uh, with Aborigines in Australia and then in, then in uh, Africa and then in Hawaii. I've spent a whole like Interesting. living with shamans out there. So I kind of <laughs> did all this. I got way outside of society and I think part of it was I was trying to figure out um, where society ended and then I began and um, I think the moment that I got the farthest outside of society was when I was with these Aborigines in Australia land, uh, sorry, Ardham land, which is kind of like the, the reservations um, that are uh, there for Australian, kind of like the way we have Indian reservations in America. And um, I, I was able to go there and they let me go on this part that was not for foreigners of their beach. And it was just this beautiful parts of like just gorgeous beach, the kind of beach and area that, people spend their whole year to take two weeks to go to, you know, working. And, uh, I was out there and I was alone. Um, and I said, this is the peak of what I'm supposed to be. Like, this is where people work all year to go. And I just realized, you know what? I think the best moments of life are actually when I was with people and, and part of someone else's story and like kind of being with others. And that's when I started reintroducing myself to society, getting back inside and wanting to find out, you know, how what our narrative is and, and how to how i could contribute to it and it took me a long time i finally went back uh i remember i was in i kind of went that's what i did spend some time in hawaii still kind of tracing those roots out but then ended up in boston um before i went back to university and the 9-11 happened and uh that kind of again another kind of another grand narrative and then sort of hearing about saudis and having sort of these passports drop out of the sky. And I was just like, and, and then again, people getting this different attitude towards my story, which is like, Oh, American was born in Saudi. And then they're starting to tell me, well, Saudi, this Saudi, that before they were curious, but I felt like now they were saying things about a place they had no idea about. And, and so I just, you know, I sort of took that and I said, I got to go back to university, finish my degree. And then I got to figure out how I'm going to get out there and do something. And when I finished my degree, which was in communication, only thing I want to do is like, let me go to Hollywood and just figure it out. And, you know, just try to see what that was the only thing I was interested in. How do I do it? And I remember I went out to Hollywood. I couldn't even afford being there for the first two weeks. I had to take a job <laughs> selling hand lotion in Chicago uh, with a Hollywood company for a few months. And then I came back and I signed up for universal casting, which is the big background thing. It was back that it was like very physical. You take a real, like a Polaroid shot and then you get on the phone and you call in and you find out, you know, you get on these big sets. And then I kind of, because I had the internet and I remember I got a Mac and hacked all the programs. I don't repeat that. It's probably illegal. But at the time I did that and, and I, and I kind of taught myself to edit and do all these things. And I was getting on these sets and like talking to people and right, figuring it all out. And I kind of quickly realized, well, let me do this sort of film without like, if I asked, if I waited, waited to find out how I could do like if I waited for someone to say direct this or produce this, I would I would be there forever. Dude. It could take never happen, years, yeah. thirty years. It, it could someone can never choose you. You, know, so you have to choose yourself, and that's when we kind of crowdsource this Aramco Brat film, and um, that's what a lot of people don't understand is we had no, we just did it all self funded. We we basically uh, did the trailer and then we put the trailer online, uh, and then did a PayPal link. That was there was no Kickstarter back then. It was a PayPal link, and people people could pre order the DVD. And through that, it's kind of through the trailer, we kind of got discovered and people were 
we're, we're ordering it and then kind of lucky for us you know this group friends of saudi arabia wanted to see the movie and we hadn't finished it we premiered it over there sort of showed a bit of it in orlando and through that eventually we were contacted by Prince turkey al faisal who was kind enough to and really he wanted the dvd but I kind of said, well, we'd love to give you the DVD once we release it, or we could do a private screening. And he was kind enough to invite us to Riyadh to yeah, do the private screening. Yeah. <laughs> so, and that Todd, was my reintroduction Todd, to Saudi. Let me, let me interrupt just one second, just for context for our listeners. So um, the, the Ramco relationship with Saudi Arabia uh, is unique and special, in my opinion. This is a, you know, a large U.S. Yes. investment and company and, and community that, came to work in Saudi Arabia. Many of them became very uh, attached to Saudi Arabia and lived there for many years. And, and the end result was a, 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 a large, cohesive, very close community that would meet, that does meet, continues to meet, um, you know, Absolutely. annually or in yes. other things. So, and you were, you being an Aramco brat, you you are yeah. you know, a, a made member of this, this uh, cabal. <laughs> um, and- so that's what, that's true. what we're talking about. When you said, you said, okay, I, we, we have this amazing community of Americans who have experience and, and a love for Saudi Arabia. I'm going to, I'm going to tap into that. And, and, and that's a good, I'm glad you jumped in on that because yeah, maybe I should take a step back and kind of, so the Aramco Brad experience is the expat experience. First of all, is an experience. I think that people are having more and more as the world has gone larger and larger more interconnected and that goes across all cultures i think there's a lot of people i'm sure you guys have heard of the third culture kid uh, phenomenon tck uh, book and that i think um i think growing up between cultures the idea is there's a third culture you create and that's a culture that's not either the one you come from or another one that you're, you're in and i would say that that experience i mean is becoming i think so universal, even with the internet, in a way it's creating a third culture for people that are between their life on the internet, their life here, and they create a new one. And I mean, look at Obama. He was, for example, he was a third culture kid. He grew up overseas and, and lived a lot of places. And I do think that that experience gives you a different outlook on life. And and it does make you, in some ways, into a storyteller automatic because you're always having to translate between cultures and find out what the story is and where you can relate. Try to connect to other people get past what would maybe be initial appearances to kind of go below the surface other people and try to get the story out of them as well as tell a story that makes you more human to them. And I think that practice is a very common one amongst third culture kids. It's why I think there's a gel, automatic gelling there. The Aramco story is very unique. It's a, it's a culture within the expat story, which it, it's such a world in of itself. And there's really hundreds of thousands, like probably over a hundred thousand people at least that have gone through this life like me right. and um, had this experience growing up. And I think for me, the drive of doing that story was multiple levels. One was actually just really to tell the story. I think for people like me um, to us to have something to reference and say, Hey, here's, here's a common experience. It's something that, you know, that, that all these other people, it's sort of their story and, and our story. And that, that was the very basic, I think, drive. But then there was another level to like, because of that's our story uh, and because sort of the American experience and also the Saudi experience is involved in that, I think the natural then thing was to, there was a bit of, um, you know, 
a bit of protectiveness over, you know, when people start talking about the place you grew up in. And, And I think that that's what gave it that other level as well of people hearing all these things about this country, Saudi Arabia, and then, but never no one really being there. So to hear from people that have lived there, I think was very profound. I mean, when we did a screening in Hollywood, I remember I had one of those, um, this Kim today, she was one of the executive producers for Robert Nero's films. She was bawling her eyes out when she saw it. She said, I had no idea there were Americans over there or any like the experience of, and, and that was back in like 2007. But well, I, yeah. I want to, I want to, I want to, two things. One, I'm going to do a plug for the 966 because um, we just had yeah. a, just an unbelievably good episode with uh, Prince Turkey Al-Faisal. Um, yeah, great, who, great guy. And, and just, person. and I'll, I'll wrap in two things. One, and what's interesting is that we talked about one of the things that when Prince Turkey come out, came out, I said, let's focus on your father, you know, uh, King, King, uh, King Faisal. Faisal. Yeah. And then uh, let's talk about, you know, the King Faisal Foundation. And part of the, one of the, one of the aspects of the King Faisal Foundation was the King Faisal Center for Research and Islamic Studies, which is what picked up your film. All right. So that's, mm-hmm. so, so that's our, you know, that's a shameless plug for, the 966. Again, you know, it's an amazing episode with Prince Turkey. Please go uh, listen to it. But I also want to put a person. Yeah. Uh, two other things. One is you talk about the Ramco experience and the, and the affinity the Americans feel. It's really uh, the Ramcons are, are, are in many ways beloved by Saudis, too. So the, it's 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 a it's a mutual admiration and respect. Saudis, you know, have always taken Aramcons to their heart and appreciated the, you know, their being involved in their country. One more pin. This is 2007 when you did Home, the Aramco Brass story. I just, again, you know, let's return to the beginning where Todd Albert Nims is the mythic, mythic figure that, you know, is haunts all the arts, you know, <laughs> backstories of Saudi Arabia. Um, you know, cinemas were not opened again in Saudi Arabia until April 2018. So, so yeah. not, uh, you know, all the things that we've been talking about on the night success of late and all the, you know, things you get about changes in, in, in Saudi Arabia, this is April, 2018. So back to your story, you're at 2007 and you're a Ramco Brad story. So to, to add on to that, uh, and to, to kind of reiterate some of what you just said, Prince Turkey Al-Faisal, I wouldn't have ever been back in Saudi if it wasn't for Prince Turkey Al-Faisal. He is a legend. He was the ambassador to the United States. Uh, he was also the former head of intelligence here, but he's also just done a lot, I think, to, I mean, support people like, I mean, find people like me, I wouldn't say support, but as far as like bring it. So like I said, we kind of, he wanted the DVD and kind of, but he was gracious enough to invite us out to screen it in, in LA. I'm sorry, in, in Riyadh. And what happened is, is he, we did sort of a screening with, I remember princes and um, some diplomats. And it was maybe about 60, 70 people in, at the King Faisal Center for Richard Islamic Studies, which has a large cinema like, you know, auditorium, which with, with big screen. And actually I approached him after uh, we did it and it was great. I said, I thanked him and, and uh, we, we were very, very gracious. I said, it was very gracious. I said, you know, I said, Prince Turkey, you're all high. It's like, you know, this is wonderful. Uh, and I also, you know, I also know like, but w- what a shame because there's been no public screening of movies since, you know, probably before set before Juhayman in the 79, because everything right. got it shut down. So I said, wouldn't it be great <clears throat> would, if we could screen this film to the public? And he said, you know what? Absolutely. I love the idea. Let's do it. And he was very gracious. 
kept me, basically let me, me stick around. We kind of sent the other, other guys. And I was there till a few months later, in February of 2008, we did that. We did the first <laughs> public screening. And this is where I started. That's why I think some people call me the first guy. <laughs> I started the first, <laughs> you know. So it's like, uh, you know, the, the, um, you know the, um, the first public screening that had been done in, I guess, what, 30 years or something yeah. like that, right? Yeah. And we had this, uh, I, I think it, it fits somewhere between 500 to 700 people. And it was standing. We usually had people standing there. And then it was just packed with people. And I still to this day, I run into people and they're like, oh, I know from, I saw back way back in 2007 that movie, you know, and, and it, so it was a, and then it was just such a joyous occasion. And um, that was quite a moment, I think, for, for cinema, for me and for cinema, I think for Saudi. And it was also an indicator, I think, of a lot of the changes that were starting to already happen that weren't, people didn't know but that were going on, you know, kind of below the surface that you mm -hmm. could see already going on in that direction, that, which Prince Turkey was also a part of. In fact, if anything, Prince Turkey Al-Faisal also, I mean, he has an epic role in the cinema too. But, uh, I mean, I'm, he, he, he was doing at that time the um, Arabia 3D, which I was, I was very fortunate to sort of, mm -hmm. he, I was sort of able to be involved a little, not really, in it in it but around uh, he let me come to some meetings with him and stuff and and that was an epic that was the first IMAX of, of Saudi Arabia 3D and they also did this other one on Mecca and uh, so that was like he was starting to do these things already and uh, yeah I mean funny enough later on of course which we're not to that part of the story it ended up coming full circle and I was able to come around and help and and kind of be a part of, of the uh, well we'll help kind of make this whole movie happen with the born a king movie which was you know 10 10 years down the road after after that whole thing right um but yes in the meantime did the comedy you know and and, and the online shows and all that kind of stuff which was also part of that <laughs> eventually so, became part of those things. so talk a little bit about the comedy because i guess you were you were you were sort of part of this this uh c3 initiative is that correct which which yep. evolved into tell files 11 Yep. Uh, yep. You know, and and again, just for our viewers, I mean, this is Telfound Eleven is a big deal. They just read, you know, two years ago they signed a an eight deal net, uh, deal with Netflix. Um, They're so, huge. Yeah. Yeah. So and and again, there we are in the comedy story, and you go back to the origins. There's Todd Albert Dooms. So tell us a little <laughs> bit about that. <laughs> so uh, one of the founders of Telfaz, uh, Ali Kelthami. Who's, who's coming out with a big feature film here coming up soon, but he's a very talented, become a very talented director. Um, so back, funny enough, when I did Home in America Red Story, he was an IT guy at Al-Arabiya, uh, or sorry, at NBC. And uh, and he was a translator for this interview I was doing with Al-Arabiya about the movie. And after, from the moment that we met, but even before the interview, we were cracking jokes and we ended up hanging out like every day for a year after that. We, we just hung out. And during that time, one of the other interviews I had with Saudi television, there was a guy who approached me after the interview. It's also about the film. They were asking expats about their kind of impressions about Home Miracle Brad's story. And this British guy comes up to me. He says, listen, I'm doing this comedy stuff. I've just started. I really want to have someone help me with it and film. And I said, yeah, I can do that. And then uh, so started filming these comedy shows. Uh, actually would bring Ali with me. He would, he was doing his first film work, like doing the, you know, the, the switch and stuff. And um, then we were, you know, all these young Saudi comedians, they were opening for these international headliners and we, we were all becoming friends. 
and doing these shows together. And then I said, we were going around with Ali and I remember um, we would talk all the time and I said, you know, we got to do something, you know? And, and then uh, it was funny. I kind of went with Rotana TV, another big television channel here. And they wanted me to, I was talking about, I want to do this music documentary. There's so much, nat, like there was so much music here in Saudi underground bands. And the guy ended up like the head of the channel at the time. He was sort of like, can you do it? Can you make all these other scenes and make it this drama, docudrama almost? Finally, I just said, you know what? I love what you're saying. I'm going to come back to you with a script. And basically that's when we did this first like sketch comedy script that wasn't a documentary at all. It was just a total fictional thing about four losers that yeah. like always try things and they fail. It was called Almost the Kriben. <laughs> and that was the first time all these young comedians ever acted anything, you know, like Ibrahim Khrela, who's ended up now big, one of the owners of Telfaz, Fahad Abateri, who's huge at the time. Um, you know, a, a lot of the guys uh, that uh, th it was their first thing. We all filmed it. And it was like, I remember we sold my iPhone to get like, use the camera and stuff like that. The first time. So it was a real like, you know, and I remember we brought it to NBC and it was way too advanced for their time. They were just like, Saudis, they don't think anything's funny. This is comedy for Sunno. Saudis don't like comedy. Like, oh, you can't do this. Like, it's the, the youth. What do you mean? It was like they, it, they didn't get it. And um, you're listening, NBC. Too bad you missed your, you missed out. <laughs> but um, anyway, anyway. Um, but to fast forward through all, or to, to kind of, so then after that, the, that was the reason because they didn't accept that. It was like, let's not, let's forget NBC. You don't get it. Let's do things online. And so, um, I got stuck back in the U.S. Uh, for a little bit, and Ali and Allah, who later who who was kind of working at SDC at the time, they shot this little like spoof commercial with this guy Halid Khalifa, who was in again in the sketch thing. He was our co. He was like this guy who did this funny rap thing. Another comedian guy. It went well. A lot of people reacted to it online. So when I got back, we started. They were filming Iktar and. Anyway, at the time we had formed right before I left, we had formed what we called C three, which stood for. This is something we'd always talk about. Is like it was called Creative Culture Catalyst C three. We wanted to catalyze a creative culture here in Saudi. Mm -hmm. Catalyze creative culture C three C. You know, uh, Creative Culture Catalyst, and that was the the idea behind you know what we were kind of doing. Is like if the, it was actually the similar idea of why I wanted to, like the reason I was ever interested in comedy is because uh, it was a way for another way for not just other foreigners, but also Saudis to see a new lens, a human lens themselves through a human lens and others to see it through a human lens. Because a lot of times uh, we put people under a microscope through a certain lens, especially Saudis. There's a biased, biased thing that it's like, I don't know, either oil, human rights, religion, um, or, you know, kind of this like Royal family kind of shake thing um, or Bedouin type thing. But it's never like, just as human beings. And, and there is this thing when you laugh with someone, you, that's when you really feel you get to know them. Mm -hmm. And that was sort of the idea behind it. And it was like, how can, you know, sort of like, that was what drew me. It was like having, and not just foreigners, like a lot of Saudis at the time. When I came in 2007 uh, to Riyadh, and I hadn't really spent any time in Riyadh, everyone I met hated being in Saudi. They did not like it. They didn't like their own country. They didn't like being here. And part of it was because they had totally bought into an external narrative that was really everything was just bad news about Saudi at that point. Like it's been that like that since 9-11, six years of just bad reading external press that was just down on the country. And also there was a lot of other things too, just like it, it was a different place at that time. But funny enough, you fast forward to now, all those same people love it here. 
and mm-hmm. and because so much has changed and they've got opportunity. So it's just so interesting. But I think part of it was I kept saying like what idea was become the media before it becomes you. We need to tell the story. Let's do comedy ourselves. Let's tell, let's do our own sketch. And that was what the online sketch was for. So we came back when we did the second episode of Lekhtar at my house in Dahran. But at that point, the reason <laughs> I got back was because, well, it's another story, but, but I, basically I kind of came back. I was trying to you know, figure out how I was going to get back to Saudi and I could not, but I ended up getting, hired by Ithra because right. they, uh, this, I had, I had, my mother had told me maybe six months before she's sick of me doing all this stuff, not making money, kind of like just losing, you know, Jesus has passion. Said, you need to get a job, you know, doing PRs and do something, you know? And then, then she said, I apply for this position, this film position. And I said, no, they'll find me if, if they know what they're doing. And six months later, sure enough, they reached out to me and said, apply for this position. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I, I, I did. And, 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 and uh, that was where I had to make a tough decision, which was, stay with the C3 thing, which was, of course, it really wasn't, it was just something we do out of passion or, you know, take the job at Ithra. And we all talked about it. And at the end of the day, I, I everyone felt this way. And, and be honest, they were doing their own stuff at that point. They didn't really even need me. They were already, everything was in Arabic. Not even they needed me, but I, I wasn't, I don't think I was contributing the way I could before because they were, everything right. was turned into Arabic. They were, get, they were shooting the, the stuff on their own. They were killing it. And it was just like, here's this guy who doesn't really, I don't, this is a sad thing. I don't actually speak Arabic properly, believe it or not. I truly am an Aramco brat as <laughs> English. Uh, and, and it's just sad, but uh, yeah, so, I ended up taking this job at Ithra, the film producer position. And, well, and, and we I, saw it one day I could help. I want to, I want to do that Ithra thing, but on the, on the comedy, um, it, it, when we talk with people on the 966 about this, uh, you know, I'm not sure what the term is, but this, you know, this sort of explosion of artistic activity in Saudi Arabia. The the and Lucian, I think you agree with me. The customer feign is it was always there. It was always there. It just couldn't. It, there was no platform for it. There was it was you know the the society in general wasn't ready for it. Um, I mean, you know, it, and you can see why that would frustrate the younger generation. But uh, on the other thing, I've often thought, because I, I first went to the Sa- Saudi Arabia, lived in Saudi Arabia in the mid-80s, have an affinity for it. And I've often thought about my friendships with Saudis. And 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 one of the things that I've always found that there's a, almost immediate connection as an American is almost every Saudi I know is inclined to laugh. Yeah, yeah. They, yep. they, 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 they want to, you know, they love humor. They love good humor. They love to share humor. And I, I'm that way. And I think a lot of Americans are. And, and for me, that was always a connection. The first response was sort of a, a happy laughter response. Um, and I, I don't know if that's been your experience, but it, 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 it certainly has. So I, I, what you're saying, I really resonate with. In fact, I want to, I'd love to comment on that, which is, their Saudis have always had a sense of humor for sure. And I also think even especially the eighties onward that became much, I think it's a very, became a very unique sense of humor and part of it because good comedy, and maybe this is getting a little deep, but it's true is that it's, you know, comedy actually is a way of rejection. It's, it's a way of like a lot of comedy. It's about, it's, a, it's, it's actually accept. It's like a way of, of rejecting something, but 
you know, kind of accepting it, like these absurd situations sure. of life, which, which and it's what it does is it gives you a perspective on something you didn't have and it makes you see it in an absurd way of good comedy. And that's what makes you crack up, right? Because you just see it in your light. You go, oh my God, this is so absurd. You realize how absurd it is. And I think that a lot of time, for a long time, a lot of Saudis and some of how they deal with some of the challenges they face is through that kind of, that's why the comedy is so so used a lot here to kind of it's it's a it's a way of in a way like coping and 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 there's just a funny like and it's such a sophisticated developed such a sophisticated sense of humor it's very unique i mean especially the nejdi riyadh one is very unique the way they do the comedy <laughs> it's hilarious it's hilarious um so, so I, I, I yeah go ahead sorry uh, no i just so i just i'm just saying i guess that i think that that when when you say it was underneath the surface, that com that comedic sense has been developed over a while. I think with Saudis, they do love to laugh. They're very, I think Saudis have a, a lot of common in common with Americans. Um, surprisingly enough, because of they've both been like very Saudi from the get go. Has always been a a self determined country. You know, unlike a lot of other parts of the Middle East, it was never uh, beholden to a colonial power for its formation. Right. And therefore, a lot like Japan, a first world country, it's come to the first world on its own terms. Like you, in Japan, it's just, it's first world, but it's different. Japan is how it is. You either right. take it or leave it. Same how Saudi, it's always kind of been itself. You either take it or you leave it. When a lot of other countries, like nation states, the whole idea of our current world, the way it's set up with nation states is kind of the idea of you, it, a nation state begins with being formed out of people either someone coming to power and everyone seeing that on their own terms or through some other process that's that's but it's determined by the people if you don't do that from the beginning it's kind of a crippled system because you don't you don't have the, the whoever's in power looking out first of all everyone knows they're not legitimate and then they're not you know looking out the interests of their own interests they're having to be holding to something other outside of themselves and i think that's important to realize for saudi because that I think it shares that and that kind of the cowboy culture is very similar to the Bedouin culture. And so there's this very like Saudis intend to be fairly genuine and they just like that open heartedness laugh. And therefore the sense of humor is somewhat similar too, because the Saudi and American relationship has been long and deep. Mm -hmm. And um, that, therefore there's that aspect as well, where the, unlike a lot of other parts of the Middle East and the world, even Saudi is one of the few places American, there's a weird parallelism to American life. Because you go here, the roads are like American. You go a lot of the a lot of the business culture is more American actually than it is British. Or you go to a lot of the parts of the world, it's like a British, or French, or Portuguese, or or Spanish. You know, th there's these because of colonialism and and that those echoes are still there on on how the things were formed. When here in Saudi, there's a big there's this imprint that's not colonial. It's actually from business, but being done at a very early day with America and this relationship that was a more of a, a on equal footing from the early day. And it's a very like business thing. I, I think that's, I, I agree with that. And that, that equal footing perception, you know, for, for Saudis, not only obviously um, birthplace of Islam, but never been colonized it's origin stories, you know, they've been Saud, you know, we, we, we essentially, right. and, and it's, it's similar, <clears throat> similar to the U S and we sort of, we, we created ourselves. Saudis don't look at it that way. Cause it's not, that's, that's too arrogant, but, uh, but you know, that we did, you know, we, we brought this country together. It had been Saud and we've held it together. 
we are the birthplace of Islam. You're you're exactly right. When they engage with the world and with Americans, it's very much on an equal footing. It's yeah. you know, so it's a different it's it is a different tone and tenor. But uh, let's talk about Ithra because again, you know, you went there, um, and and you established the first cinema. You know, you 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 know, we talk a lot about the Red Sea Film Festival and stuff, but you were you launched the Saudi Film Days back, you know, again a a, 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 dec a decade ago. Uh, can you tell us yeah, a little bit about yeah. that experience? So, uh, uh, so I joined Ithra in 2010 October. It was really still just. Uh, I mean, it, there was they had laid a symbolic foundational stone, but it wasn't. I mean, it was it was a long way till it was going to be built. I mean, it was still a ways off. I mean, I think it was like what 2016 or 17 when they finally opened. So it, there was a good five years or so that we and were not. What, what, what you're referring to? Yeah. This is the beauty of our YouTube channel because yeah. Lucian can yeah. Lucian who does this, but it can put together that architectural masterpiece of what that yes. what that facility Beautiful. looks like. Beautiful, beautiful. I, a lot of meaning in it too. I love the the the. It's it's such a beautiful internationally. Uh, renowned architecture companies competed to build it and it's just absolutely gorgeous and and even the and there's meaning in the whole entire thing the past future present and, and up and down you go I, I love the whole kind the place is gorgeous it's it's one of a kind it truly is i've been a lot of places in the world and it is very unique it's a very unique and beautiful piece of work so the, the building itself is a work of art as is the things inside so it was a real privilege i was so so it, it was the first of its time this is before again before 2030 vision all this stuff so it was it was a real honor um, to sort of be given the chance to, to be there. And when I was hired, they said, you know, you're going to work to make a feature film, which is something we eventually did get to do, which was like uh, uh, Jude, uh, which is an amazing, right. I'm very proud of that. But before all that, uh, there were many years of um, you know, doing projects here and there that were kind of, you know, cool artistic projects we got to do that weren't movies, but other things. I won't go to, in all the details, but we definitely had a, we had a lot of programs we were running through Israel, like the Ivory program and all, all these kind of like uh, programs that were sort of youth-based programs and all that revolved art and other things that were like kind of the first of almost what really now are in a way the seasons and all these programs that are going on now. But this was sort of like early days of doing these things the first time. And so it was a real place. And we got to do like training actors in theater. We brought down the National Youth Theater. So a lot of the actors now that are really good, a lot of those went to that National Youth Theater program. And it was it was just, you know, I mean, training with with really, you know, uh, uh, they were West End heavyweights. And um, it, it was fantastic. There were so many firsts we got to do there. One of those firsts, other than making the film, was definitely towards the end of my time there, to be honest. Uh, it was like the last, because uh, I left in 2017, uh, and, um, but the last couple of years, 16, 17, uh, I was, uh, fortunate to help, I would say, cause, uh, you know, I wasn't the only one for sure that did the Saudi film days. It was, but I was able to go to Hollywood when we first started and kind of introduce, uh, the, the program kind of get, get everyone worked into the Hollywood scene to kind of launch that uh, initiative. Faisal Baltayor was really a big part of doing that. I got to kind of show him around and do some of the his first trip to Hollywood. And, um, and uh, that, that was what led to, you know, becoming the film days program, which was pretty amazing. It was really um, a program of giving a lot of grants out to young filmmakers and having them make 
movies and then getting to show those premiere those in Hollywood to uh, industry people. And um, it went on for two years and uh, I really was just involved at the beginning. And then I was so into finishing the film, uh, but it was something I got to touch and be a part of and help out. And uh, it, it, it definitely eventually, I think even before that, I would say even before that program, another thing we got to do was really work on the Saudi film festival, which was, uh, Ben Amula had started way back in 2000, I think the first one was 2008 or 2009. And, and that was something I got to attend, by the way, back in like when it first started <laughs> and, <laughs> and with Ahmed Amula. And then we luckily came around full circle. It was something that stopped for a while. And then we got to, when, when I was, got to be in that position, uh, I got to work with, um, we got to sort of get Ahmed Amula. Abdullah uh, was also there at the time we got to, get Ahmed Amula back on board and, and be supportive of the Saudi film festival. Started having Isra host, it, Isra host the Saudi film festival, which we've did outside of Isra first because it wasn't built yet. And then eventually it became a part of actual Isra and be hosted at Isra, which has become, it's the longest running fest, film festival in Saudi. It's going to be in its ninth year this coming year. Even yeah. though everyone talks a lot of the Red Sea, I think the Saudi right. film festival is, is the very local, um, it, it's got a lot more, well, it's been around a lot longer, so it's very developed in that respect. And um, it's at Isra, which is a beautiful location. And that's given rise to a ton of, of filmmakers who are now doing things at the... Well, a lot of those a lot of those people participate in the Saudi Film Days and then also are now in the Red Sea and everything else. So it's also a big part of growing um, the scene. I would almost say that that was even before Saudi Film Days and then Saudi Film Days. And then, of course left really after we did Jude. Jude is an amazing film. That was something we shot over like an entire year. And that was, um, I wish it still is working on major distribution, but it is a feature length film that is kind of these slices of life films. No word, no words, kind of like a Samsa or Baraka or Keanu Squatsi. Um, I'm and, quality, and just, we, right? we, it's 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 IMAX quality. We did the soundtrack, all original, London Contemporary Orchestra and a Saudi band, um, which, you know, was just incredible, a mix. And it was very, and, and in the whole thing, uh, some, some call it a love letter to Saudi, which I kind of think it is. Uh, but it's deep. It's, it's, it's the cycle of life in reverse. And it's kind of asking you to look below the surface of everyday experience and kind of see how life is giving even when it feels like it's taking away. That's why it's called Jude. Jude is the word for giving when you have nothing else to give, you and know, when you have nothing, basically. It, it can't, is it available to be seen? Uh, is it? It is at Ithra, at Ithra. And then they keep promising me, because I keep bugging up, is we've got to get it out. Like it never, it never really was released, released. And there's looks, a few reasons it, for that. It was going to be at the, Yeah. It, I mean, I've seen, yeah, I've seen, ahead. I've seen excerpts and snippets, and it looks so lush and so, uh, you know, you just top scale. I'm very proud in terms of that of film. production. Yeah. Um, it it so, really yeah, is. It's, we, it's a, I, it'd be great if it got out there. But I want to, I want to. Then you, when you you referred a couple times doing on working on the film, and I think you're talking about Born a King. Um, you know when. Yes. You, so when after, yeah, I left. Basically, yeah. yes. Uh, I, I was towards I, the end of my tenure there, and I left and did that. Yeah. And 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 I, I'm really interested in origins of that. Um, I mean, what a fascinating, fascinating human being, uh, uh, Faisal bin Abdulaziz uh, was, King Faisal. And um, but I have a question before that. And 
it's something that's been a mystery to me for years and years. Uh, what does a producer do? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I think the truth is there's so what a lot of people don't realize is that um, that they don't get as much glory a lot of times. But you know, behind every film is the person who actually finds the people, and and usually I think good producers are always um, creative producers as well. Like, uh, you, but they kind of take both. It's really the person that makes the film happen. I mean, that, that right. finds, you know, that, that really finds, for example, they, they might even, it could, it could, it could start with the concept and maybe they find a writer to write it. Some there you have writer producers, like I do a lot. Well, of writing. Talk, talk but about you, how, how you went about doing yeah. Born a King as a producer. So, um, in this case, I was a co-producer. So, um, I, I was, I was basically at Isra and the producer of the film, um, a Spanish producer, he kind of came to me and said, look, I've been kind of developing this concept. I've already pitched it to Prince Sergio Faisal and I've got like an initial draft of like kind of was sort of the treatment, initial part of the script. And he told me about it. And then kind of when he learned, actually, I think that I had been involved and I was already, this was, I already re, I read all of, I knew a lot about the whole already had been reading a lot and, uh, it was an interest of mine, obviously. And, uh, and when I heard the story and he had said, you know, about Faisal when he's 13 and so he wants to do, and he still needed to kind of get, you know, kind of, there's kind of the development phase, right? We're finishing developing. You're trying to find, find finalize a script. You're trying to get all these things done to then kind of get the film ready to be made. Cause making a film is a little bit like this, the first step is almost like getting the, the script is a little bit like it's a little, if you, if you were to the the equivalent is, is if you think about real estate, it's like the script is the piece of land upon which you build the house. So you kind of have to have that, that piece of land. That's the developing in a way, find that piece of land, um, you know, and, and the, the concept in general is like, what kind of piece of land do we want? But then you like have to get that actual piece of land, which is the script. So that was where I kind of came at an early stage, help, you know, kind of, fund uh finishing that and um and then was just involved in once we kind of then took that step towards actually okay look, look, this is going to be made which of course king Faisal center of islamic studies the key component to that as well as a few others and um that was when i got to really be involved in the saudi portion of the whole thing which was you know doing all the casting getting the crew um and, and for something that we, I mean, we, we had to go from, because I've done a lot of, go from scratch. I already knew a lot of what we were up against, but, you know, had to kind of, it's hard enough to kind of cast, but then when you have to find people that are look like, you know, the right. people that, you know, that, that gives another level of, that's, that's a real challenge in, in, in historical dramas, right? You have to really find someone that, I mean, Abdul Aziz was a six foot four, you know, character, you know, right. it had a very good, I mean, he was huge, you know, right. and then, and then, and then Faisal has also to kind of, had a look and, and he was very well known. You could see videos of all that at the time. He was this 13 year old trip. He was in, he was on TV a lot. He was on, there's a lot but of films. You're right. He so, had a very specific yeah. look. This specific look. So it, it was not a normal, it was a very unique look. So finding someone that could kind of get that tone. And then, you know, obviously there's not, it's not like we're in the West end or in, or in uh, LA or New York where you have people that have done years of training and acting and, right. you know, and, and we, and, and, and the, the thing is, you want to find, we wanted to find Saudi, right? People that were, had been here in Saudi 
and lived it and could could have that essence. So, um, and, I, and I think we succeeded. That that was a big um, that was the big challenge to kind of get all that set up. And then the crew too. Like we want to try to really have Saudis as much as possible. So that was like especially in the early stages of getting everything ready and the locations as well. Finding the locations. I remember you know when we started and stumbled upon this Aladria, which is where we did a lot of the filming, which is like outside of Riyadh, which is this remake of Musbuk Fort. And that was also where this company, <laughs> Nebras, was, which had never done anything. They just had a bunch of equipment out there. They really wanted to make a feature film. They bought all this stuff. You know, and I remember they were saying, hey, hey, yeah. You know, they, 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 they literally had that land with the Musbuk Fort. They said, hey, can you come see our studio? Which we kind of get a lot of when you're looking around. Hey, come see our thing. And we said, okay, yeah, yeah, sure. Let's come see. I remember they showed me this place, which... It's just like this hangar full of equipment. It was like all this student equipment. They said, hey, yeah. And I said, what have you guys done before? They said, well, nothing, but we work on the film with you. I sort of said, I need to get back to you. You know, let, <laughs> let me check with everybody. And inside I'm going, yes. <laughs> yeah. so, so that was kind of their – they got a big break. It was a win-win. It was like their first thing. And it was it was just – you know, it's funny how things work out sometimes uh, in life. And uh, – and it just came together. I mean, that's that's kind of, I feel like, a bit a lot of my life, just kind of following that next, what seems to be falling into place. And, uh, yeah, that was kind of how it all came together. I mean, it was a pleasure. It was a real thrill to work on. Um, you know, it was a very unique production because it was kind of a Spanish team and an English team and then the sort of, you know, I got to do the kind of the Saudi portion of it. And, um, and then, of course, uh, Prince Turkey, I got to work with Prince Turkey Al-Faisal, which was just, a, you know, it was, it was it was an honor. It was, felt like, and that was a real privilege because it, it was, I, I was trying to kind of give back for him inviting me uh, way back when. Um, so it was kind of like for me, like a full circle thing. Um, I still feel I could do much more uh, and, and happy to do much more <laughs> anytime, but uh, you know, it, it's nice to, to be able to kind of help tell a story that, that you are already connected to in a way because of through kind of Prince Turkey off Faisal. And um yeah, I, I think it, I'm really happy with the film. I just wish we had gotten it. I wish it had a chance to get further um, than it did, out, more distribution outside. Uh, and I hope one day it does get that. Um, but I think that was just unfortunately because of sort of the timing of the release. It just uh, didn't work out the way we, we'd hoped. Yeah, but, it's, um, it's not. Lucian, you saw it on uh, Shahid. You saw it on MB, NBC. I got it on my computer, on, on my laptop. Um uh, so you may not have gotten um, the appropriate royalties from that. I'm sorry about that. But um, <laughs> if I could ask you, Todd, what, what's next? What are you working on now? What's uh, uh, We know you're in Saudi right now on a pretty cool road trip. Um, but what's next for you? So I, I would, so I, so there's a few things. Um, one, I have to bring it up because we, we kind of touched on him before uh, because we're kind of going a little back in history. We talked, we touched upon Abdul Aziz who is a very epic figure. I mean, to me, the story of Abdulaziz is truly epic. And I've been working on a script now for 12 years uh, about the <laughs> Abdulaziz Ibn Saud story. It's like a Braveheart story. It's it's so amazing because it sort of starts out when he's nice, he's being chased out of Riyadh, he ends up in the desert, which is, this is all true. And he like basically between nine and 16, he grows to be, you know, six foot four and he learns to live off dates and, and, and learns to battle. It's like the classic it becomes this epic guy comes to Kuwait. And then eventually that's when he like at 16, he comes in to uh, take but, over Riyadh. And then there's more of the following that. That's, so that's this a story. This story is so good. I mean, this was a swashbuckling so guy. 
I mean, he's out raiding in the winter of, of, of 1902. And, you know, his dad says, come home. And he says, no, I'm going to take 40 of my best buds and go across and, and take, take Rion. I'm going to climb palm trees and, and retake our, our birthright, you know, into the Saud family. It's just an unbelievable story. And you're right. It's, it, it's compelling in any medium, any language. Me too is because I always think of the psychology. You know the thing about how, like, imagine at nine you're sort of you're growing up in Riyadh. You kind of have your life. You're you're so young. You don't really know. But then you get kind of chased out, and then you're living in this the Rubahali with the Mura. The Mura are the most badass trackers historically. Like these guys can they can follow anything, and you're learning from these guys the ways of like the track. I mean, you're becoming this, like they're kind of the most, like in a lot of ways, very epic when it comes to all this stuff and survival and all these kind of things and tracking and all these. And and you learn to do the raids and you're really learning firsthand, not as like a, as a, like a hoity toity Royal, not to say <laughs> yes. that that's anyone was hoity toity, but to survive. So you're learning this in a real way. And, and then I would just be thinking my psychology, I'm being told, you know, you come from this great family and, you know, but yet you look around and you're, 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 you know, you're just, you're barely surviving and you're having to do that for years. And then you're just thinking, I'm the guy that I'm supposed to, you know, I need to bring back this kingdom, but yeah. make it in the most permanent way possible. I think that honestly, you come out of there with that psychology. I think that's how he was able to do what he did and not just stop at Riyadh and really unite. And, and, and then just the, the whole strategy and the things he did was so smart. Like I kind of know it really intimately because we're doing this. So my dream one day, and I say one day, cause I've been working on this without like, uh, I would love for one day, hopefully someone up top blesses the script and, uh, and I'm able to actually do it. Uh, cause it's not there yet, but I, I've been, my, my, I, 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 we did a bunch of rewrites recently and I, I want to run it through Dara that there's a new head of that. And I'm hoping that somehow, you know, someone, because I would love to make that, that would be my dream film. Uh, so that's sort of the thing I've worked on. I had to bring it up because it's just such a cool story. And I think it's going to be epic if ever it gets it to be told. It is a cool story. I really hope you can do this. Yeah. I hope so. Well, I love the start of it too. The way we started is like FDR and him meeting, you know, cause that's a really fascinating meeting when they first start out because I have the pamphlet from this Colonel Eddie who, you know, he was a translator. Right. Colonel right. Eddie actually started the office of special affairs, which later became the CIA. It's such a, his, tale of telling of the FDR meeting with, with Abdulaziz is so cool. It is the coolest thing to read. It's, it's this great. The, that's the back end of this figure. You know, he's a swashbuckling mm -hmm. young guy, you know, his, his favorite aunt whispering in his ears, you have a, you have a destiny, you know, you're going to go back and I, and, and, and then, but then he, 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 you know, he, he basically creates the country unifies much of the peninsula, but he, he's also quite a, a, a politically savvy, uh, leader you know you know you know yeah on top of all this you know that that fdr connection but yeah it's a great story i hope you can do this todd it's great and that, that also gives an american lead to be great i hope so um i think we've done it in a way i think that would work but anyway uh so that's one um another thing is um so after we finished Born a King, I, I started doing um as you kind of alluded to some theater i did the first big immersive theater and I, I would really like, I don't know if you guys are familiar, most people aren't with immersive theater, but like the, the most classic examples we'll know about is Sleep No More in New York. It's kind of this where you, it's not stage theater. You know, you go into a building uh, as, a, as a guest, you, you play a role as a visitor and, you know, you're kind of immersed in this world. And for me, I wanted to get into this kind of storytelling specifically because I think the future is in augmented 
reality. I think these gla- these phones we're, we're talking on as smartphones, uh, Apple's going to come out with glasses soon. They're going to basically, STC or AT&T are going to be saying, do you want a new phone or do you want a, you want a pair of these augmented reality glasses where you can see the world, but you have like digital overlays. And to me, that's going to be create a new form of experience. It's going to go beyond cinema because you're going to be playing roles in you know, what you do and, and this firsthand sort of nonlinear storytelling. So I've been trying to do that. Well, I like first, you know, so I want to do a first immersive. <laughs> that was sort of, I want to do that in Saudi because, you know, I just have to. But with the 5G coming, that, that's where I'm kind of gearing towards. But uh, before I do that, because that's a little way off, because we won this hackathon recently with Ericsson to kind of do some kind of underlying VR, virtual earth grid, I would call it, this technology. But past that, I'm also working on a musical right now, a Saudi musical. It's a contemporary musical because I want to do the first musical. Well, that's, uh, well, but of know, course you are. Yeah, 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 right, right. I know, of course. And that, that would be my goal is to do that. I've also got a kind of a sci-fi film I'm developing. And I'm making also a film out of the immersive experience we did in Jeddah because this the writing for this immersive experience we already did, um, I'll tell you a little bit about it. It's just because it's very fascinating. We basically took this lore from the area, from Al Balad. Al Balad's the old original part of Jeddah. It's the, probably one of the most fascinating parts of the country because you go there, there's these beautiful homes and, and they've got this Mishrabiya doors and it's just so unique. That's where all the old families of Jeddah were for you right. know, hundreds of years. And, and there's these stories from that area. And so we kind of took that and we created this kind of story, Beit al-Dahlizi. It's about this family. It means kind of the family of the corridors. But of course, the way we tell it is, and a lot of people think this family is a real family. It's not, we made it up. But, you know, sort of their job at the time, their history is, was to dig tunnels from the time of the Ottomans. Like, you know, the Ottomans were doing for digging tunnels. So they would dig all the tunnels under al Baghdad. A lot of people say they made their money from that. A lot of people say they made their money from the jinn, which are like kind of the ghosts, <laughs> because the jinn live in tunnels. So that's sort of the the backstory to the kind of this family. But basically, the whole thing's about it's like a murder, supernatural murder mystery where this guy Salah has been killed. The family, some of the families, blaming it on the jinn. The and of course the jinn are upset because they don't want to be blamed for the for the whole thing. So you're kind of, you know, there's this whole backstory there where you're you're show up as a suspect in the murder. A judge is calling you to trial ends up being a gen judge. So we're kind of making a film out of this, which is cool because it's going to go to the spirit world of, 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 of this style because he kind of dies in the beginning. It's the first person narrative him, but he's dead in the start. So he's a dead person to tell this story. And um, <laughs> we're going to kind of start out in the spirit world and do all this stuff. So I think it's going to be a great film. But we are kind of waiting for the film box office to grow a little bit for, for a lot of this stuff. So that's why I'm kind of focusing a little more on theater and still developing these things on the side because the box office is growing and it's going to continue to grow and that's only going to be better for getting kind of real returns in in the you're going to tell a savvy story you want to make sure it does good locally first and so yeah it's, i would say there's a few levels we're working on you know yeah. but that's one of them um so let's bring let's bring it on home so you're chairman of the arts culture and entertainment committee for the amcham ksa we've just had again let's do a shout out we just had bill foster who's chairman of the amcham ksa join us great conversation and 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 we're big fans of the of the u.s you know business community in saudi arabia we we think it's our, our greatest asset uh here at the 966 anyway and so you know give us a quick overview if you can you know you know to sort of like what's changed and what's the, what's the current environment for the arts in Saudi Arabia? And what, as you know, well, how, as you're, as you're head of that committee, what, you know, what's your focus? 
So um, I've been doing this committee as that's to do it in 2019. So I've been doing it for the last three years now. Um, and it's been really, really uh, wonderful because it, you know, and, and I've been plugged into all levels of the art scene already anyway. So it's kind of an extension, a continuation of sort of what I was already doing. It was a natural fit for me. Um, and it is, uh, I, I would say the art scene, of course, uh, if you want to look at the changes, um, there's obvious changes that have already gone on in the country, which is, you know, the opening up of the country. I think the killing of a lot of the corruption, um, all, and then just the opening up and the support of the arts and culture is, I mean, it is such a rare thing. And there's a few times in the world where sort of, I would say, you know, uh, you're in the right place at the right time. And, and I also believe sometimes a place has its time, like Riyadh right now is how it's, it's time. Like it is having its time, even Saudi, especially Riyadh. It's it's time. Like Dubai might have been at its time maybe a few years back, but I think it's Riyadh's time. And I think that it's a unique place when you have support and like earmarked support from the top for all these different lines of arts and culture. It's rare in any country. And when it is done, it's not done at that level and with that amount of power behind it being able to be so direct and not have to go along a lot of you know avenues right. to kind of deliver that support. Uh, so there's that. There's also we right now in Saudi are in a very unique sense of like what I what I always parallel to is the baby boomer generation in the U.S., which was after World War II. Right, we had this huge population of population first amongst the whole allies, all the West, not just in America, but in 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 Europe as well, where you had this huge burgeoning young population. And that is actually the term pop culture is actually coined from that generation, popular culture the, of this population. Everything was catering to them. It changed every time they grew. Like when they were young, more schools were built. As they grew older, you know, businesses like catered to them, like the children's program was made because they wanted to cater to this kid. You know, it was a biz, every business opportunity started looking at how can we cater to this generation because it was the most sales. And that just shifted everything as the, even the way we view pop culture. Now, a lot of us don't realize we look at the world. A lot of times, if you're a hit, if you like cinema and you like music, a lot of it, even advertising, a lot of it's through their eyes. Even the way we call generations, you know, like why is, I don't know, you know, why do we think of the fifties is like, leave it to beaver. And the sixties is like, peace, love, dope, and kind of like, you know, this kind of like, and 70s is like Coke and disco and, and you know, and jobs and all this kind of stuff. And 80s is family time. Why is 80s family time? Well, these guys, we were kids and they're literally, leave it to beaver. They were, they were kind of high school protesting wars at that 60s, 70s. They're getting their first job. They're experimenting with drugs. Okay. 80s, they're like having families. They're kids. That's why it's family time. 90s is like really rebellious because all their kids are teenagers. From there, it's like, who are these grandkids? Generation this, generation yes. X, and Y, and Z. Like, so we still name everyone through. We're still looking, trying to, but that's also they're starting to die out. Like, we're we're, we're actually like, that, that's where we have this. Like, we don't have a solid narrative anymore in the world. But what we do see is in Saudi, this new I would call the baby generation. You see this a lot also in other parts of like, in the you know uh, Africa and the Middle East, and Middle East, but or in, in Asia. But this young population, seventy percent is under the age of thirty. And that is is this new, what I would say, the new big boomers that's happening in Saudi, what happened over there. And also the fact that we have a young, kind of like in a way Kennedy was, but we have like a young, you know, um, this this young leader, right? Who's who's really 
you know, this is a person, one of the few people I would say in the world right now that is of a position of power in politics that actually viscerally understands and emotionally connects to things like the internet and, you know, social media and like grew up, you know, had, had some actual experience with that. I mean, a lot of people intellectually get that, but haven't, like, aren't living and haven't lived it. And I think that is very, very unique because I think right now we're in a time where we still have a lot of leaders who are from a different generation and the world has changed so much for younger people and lived experience is so much different because there's this other thing we call the internet life and the social media life and all these things that it's changing how we are as a culture in the world and interaction. And that to me, and, and now we're going to have soon enough this augmented reality, which is going to be another shift with smartphones. And I think Saudi's very position with culture arts, I think the, the, the investment is so smart in going all these directions and also looking at the new ones with 5G there. And I, I see there is a big opportunity for, you know, especially storytelling and sharing culture from Saudi and mixing technology with these kind of new experiences and new forms. And I, I love how there's a lot of experimentation going on here. And to me, that's where I see the most potential. And I see a lot of, you have all these, like, you know, this whole entrepreneur ecosystem. It's like, there's Launchpad from this. There's MISC in general, which is a great organization that I think is, and then there's, you know, startup and investment and startups, all these kind of things for all these fresh ideas. I think that can part combined with the investment in, just arts, culture, and music, and film, and theater. That, if we keep working that direction here, I think there's so much potential because you have resources, meeting youth, and innovation. And if they can keep that pathway open to keep getting those investments into these fresh, younger generation, I think we're going to see a lot of things that won't just be good for Saudi coming from arts and culture, but there'll be things that will go beyond Saudi that can be actually – um, we need 2030 visions, not just in Arabia. We need it. I wish in the West, as an American, I wish we had more people that were looking beyond the next four years. I wish we had 2050 visions, 2060. Like I would love to see more long-term thinking coming out of not just the, every 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 government everywhere, because that's what we need going forward. Is is thinking beyond a, a very small pant. We need to look keep looking at where are we going to be in you know 100 years from now, and let's work towards that. And, and I love that we're doing that here. Um, I, I, I'm sure we'll come out with the 2050 vision at some point or there will be that. But I love <laughs> that that's where people are at. And right. I think culture and arts is a lot of the artist's job in society is to paint the picture for tomorrow that we all walk into. And I think that that's what I feel obligated to do personally, but I also hope I facilitate from the American Chamber. And I think our job is to try to take the best of what America has to offer and the business have to offer America to mix that with what Saudi's trying to do and continue that relationship in, in the Middle East and in Saudi in particular. And I see, and maybe you mentioned, and I said this before, I don't know how you got that about the next generation thing, but this is how I see it is like the first wave of, you know, it used to be oil. I think that, that came over Saudi and that was maybe let's call it the first gold rush and opportunity to change. And then I think there was sort of the industrialization wave that came over and that was maybe the second. I think this part with arts and culture is the third and it's not just, I wouldn't even call it, it's a goal. It's, it's opportunity. I'm going to say goal. It's an opportunity and it's a chance to change things. And 
not just for Saudi. It's also for internationally. I think there's a lot of people that want to do things in new ways. They want a place that will support that. And I think that's why Saudi is an exciting place. Everyone that comes here, international artists, are always like, wow, I'm getting to do things I don't think I would ever do other places. And that's what I keep telling people and, and hoping to keep doing that and, and, and spread and make those connections to make that a place that uh, we bring the right people to that. Because what I'm not about is the goal is the people that are coming in and here and out just for the money. So right. I'm hoping that we can have more people that, that make it and grow in a sustainable way that I think is going to make a beacon, not just for here, but hopefully a leader beyond just the Saudi realm. If, if it's done right, I think it can. Todd Albert Nims, creative producer, writer, director, American expat born in Saudi Arabia, key player in the kingdom's blossoming film and entertainment scene. Todd, thank you so much for not only joining us. Uh, thank you as well for the new phrase that we're going to coin, uh, which is getting the 966, the intel. Richard, let's rush to the USPTO yes. and trademark this right what's, now while Todd is in the desert. <laughs> what's the 966, man? What's the 966? Todd, thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> My pleasure. It's been a pleasure both. You're both very, very kind introduction and outro. And uh, thank you uh, also, Richard, for the very insightful uh, questions and, uh, and, and guidance on things. It was a joy. Well. That was our really awesome, if we may say so ourselves, conversation <laughs> with Todd Albert Nims, just a really interesting guy. Joined us from, I believe, a hotel in the middle of the kingdom on in a Heil. road trip with friends. In Heil. He's on yeah. a road trip. A little road trip. Going to end Very up nice in Alula, to talk with I think. Yep. He's got a cool trip planned for himself, so it was great to catch him. Great conversation. Thank you to Todd. Richard, what do you think? Six Beautiful Christmas presents for Six our beautiful listeners and viewers and Yella. for our Christmas edition. Yes, indeed. Saudi in a minute. I'll try to get some good Christmas music to play the intro uh, for us if I can. That's, comple <laughs> that's completely appropriate. Any uh, any requests for the song? Last year we did. Jeez, um, we did. I'll have to listen to it, but I, I remember piping one in. Um, I heard uh, the band. The band, yes, the band, you know, of the weight fame and Robbie Robertson and the, the way band, back, the band, way yeah. back when, yeah, this yeah. this is like dating me. They had a Christmas tune, and it's actually quite nice. And it's it, about, I love new Christmas tunes because you hear the same ones over and over, and I love I will, the classics too. But yeah, I will send it to you. It's okay, a, it's it's a lovely Christmas tune, and it, uh, like you say, I get tired of the the classics. We may need to go with a classic that is older than forty or fifty years old for copyright reasons. Um, but uh, <laughs> oh, as we don't need that's the true. band chasing us down for that's revenue true. share of zero dollars. <laughs> well, well, let me check see what our our uh, you know our our budget is for. Sure. You know. Okay, cool. And we can talk to our, uh, our in-house attorney rooms. as well. Yeah. <laughs> we Just for viewers, no, we have neither a house attorney nor a budget. Well, we do, but it's whatever is in our pockets right now. And exactly. we are, you know, uh, we saw an episode of Law & Order once. So yeah. that's our extent. Um, Richard, what do you think? Let's get to Yella. Yes. Yes. Yella. Saudi in a minute. Saudi in a minute. <laughs> I was gonna try to yell it, but you do the yellow too well. I don't wanna I don't wanna horn in on that that goodness. All right, number one. Uh Saudi Arabia's gross domestic product expanded an annual eight point eight percent in the third quarter, keeping the kingdom on track to be the fastest growing among the group of twenty economies this year. 
The final figure was uh, slightly higher due to further expansion in non-oil economy. Data from the General Authority for Statistics showed recently all sectors displayed positive annual growth. Saudi Arabia has previously, previously said it anticipates full-year economic growth of 8.5%, as well as its first budget surplus in nearly a decade. We talked a little bit about this in your one big thing, Richard. This is all good for Saudi Arabia right now. Long term, you want to see the non-oil part of the Saudi economy drive these cycles. Saudi Arabia knows that. But I think um, you got to look back on this year. And and Richard, as we've done these yellas every week for 52 weeks, um, you know, these headlines of, hey, Saudi Arabia's economy is really pumping right now, um, you know, exceeding growth forecasts. We've tried to keep discussion of it down as much as we can, but I'm glad we're finishing off with this as number one, because it's the one of the biggest stories of the year that the kingdoms of kingdoms economy is the fastest growing in the G20 this year, that it's not just the oil sector that is completely driving this. It's it's driving it, but not totally. Um, A lot of these estimates have been revised upward to take into account growth in the non-oil economy. Um, Just really good news if you're a saudi this is really good news and like you said earlier richard in a segment if you're a saudi government official making decisions this is exciting this is an exciting time this is uh these are these are good days and we have to be realistic i mean this this is still a a a you know an oil economy uh they're trying to move away from it but it's you know the large majority of their uh, government revenues and 40 plus percent of their GDP. In my one big thing, I mentioned that Saudi Arabia nosed over into a trillion dollar trillion dollar uh, nominal GDP economy in 2022, which is a big number and puts it in with a certain group in terms of the globe. Um, but you know, if you look at IMF estimates, they they see IMF, for example, sees it dropping slightly back under a trillion dollar economy next year. And then in ensuing years, 24, 25, 26, 27, you know beginning its climb through the trillion marks. Um, you know, MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, his goal is to hit 1.7 trillion by 2030. We'll see. <clears throat> That's ambitious. But of course, you know, MBS is synonymous with ambitious. Uh, and so anyway, this was a good year. Uh, you know, non-oil growth is fantastic. Uh, they, they, they're, they seem to be doing what they intend to do, which is use the uh, oil revenues to bootstrap the rest of the economy and try and move on to a different, different, more diversified economy in the future. So 2022 was a good year, really good year. Indeed. Yella number two, Saudi Aramco and Total Energies will join forces to build a new petrochemicals complex in Saudi Arabia, the French Energy Group said on Thursday. The project involves investment of around $11 billion, of which $4 billion will be funded through equity by Aramco and Total Energies, the statement said. That's a lot of money. (laughs) It is a lot of money. You like to see it because that's that's the kind of investment you want to see. And it's also in keeping with long-term plans. Saudi Arabia recently announced that it plans to allocate more than a third of its, if its oil output by 2023, 2020, 2030 to chemical production. So, you know, again, trying to anticipate the uh, ultimate decline of, of fossil fuels as a, as a transport and, you know, as it's currently used and start devoting a higher percentage of their production to chemicals, which they see obviously a, a long-term, you know, well beyond 
well beyond uh, the use of of uh, crude oil as primarily a transport fuel. So you know this is a again this is a, a little building block in their longer vision, and it's good in and of itself right now, but it's also good in the long term. Yeah, just a few more details about this project. Uh, very interesting. This is from Reuters. Um, hoping to create 7,000 local jobs with this by 2027. Uh, this will be located in Jubail um, on the eastern coast, which is a, a Bechtel had their hand in building that a massive facility as well. This is just very, this is a very interesting thing. It's not a very sexy story, but it's also sort of a massive story. 7,000 jobs is a lot of jobs. And like you said, Richard, this is part of the larger plan here. Um, so an important one. Yeah. So number three, you said sexy? Sexy, yes. Electric vehicle maker Lucid. Ah, sexy. Yes, that's yeah. number three. Yeah. What's very <laughs> say, unsexy. Say no more. Which is, my ear? Lucid. <laughs> Lucid. <laughs> What's very unsexy, Richard, is the empty spot in my driveway right now that is reserved for the Lucid that is yet to be delivered. That's okay. Well, yeah. Well, it takes you know, some time. Part, of, part of being sexy is anticipation. <laughs> um, or so I've heard. Uh, electric vehicle maker Lucid Group said Monday that it has completed a planned 1.5 billion equity offering. The company first announced the offering in November, but it uh, went and reported its third quarter results, but it just closed on it. Lucid raised the majority of that cash, about 915 million, via private sale of nearly 86 million shares to an affiliate of its largest investor, the Saudi Arabia's public investment fund. The remaining $600 million was raised via traditional secondary stock offering in which Lucid sold an additional 56 million shares. Yeah, the going is getting a little tough for Lucid right now, um, but it's not because Tesla is outperforming everybody. I mean, it sort of is right now, no. but Tesla is really struggling. Um, yeah. The stock at least is. Uh, we've got a distracted CEO there at the helm. Richard, it sort of occurs to me that Lucid may be too well supported or too well backed to fail. Um, they've got a cool car. They've got a lot of R&D. Um, they have an interesting product and you have the PIF making it one of their, I don't want to say flagship investments, but they're very, very into Lucid as being a success story. So if costs overrun or if things take longer or they miss some marks, I think the PIF is probably willing to step in and make sure that things are going to the original plan, even if they take longer. Uh, it's hard to tell, but uh, I finally saw a Lucid in the wild, um, wow. not just in Riyadh. There were a ton in Riyadh, which is crazy. Is um, right? But I saw one, yes, near my home out here, and I thought it was cool. It was going a little too quickly for me to stop and ask the owner what's up. But yeah, <laughs> you're starting a... to see them hit the market, which is interesting. Nature of Lucid. Yeah, this is... Um... This equity offering was, um, you know, designed, they needed the funding, but it was also designed to maintain the Saudi PIFs, 62% holdings, percentage of holdings. So, so as you say, yeah, Saudi Arabia is deeply invested in this. And, you know, it's interesting. So what have we talked about? We've talked about the budget and uh, we've talked about, which is, you know, a long-term play. Uh, we've talked about uh, the petrochemical, Total Energy's investment long-term play uh you know lucid is a long-term play because if you look at it they had a terrible 2022 i mean their market cap dropped 80 percent and a lot of it had to do with their their difficulty in delivering vehicles um they had a terrible second quarter and and you know they just the the, the promised numbers plummeted 
they seem to be getting back on track at a better third quarter. And they also just announced that they are uh, making the lucid air available in the EU. So, you know, they're, they're, they're recovering, but again, that's the thing. That's the nature of it. You're right. You know, when we talked about the PIF holdings earlier this, this year, uh, that lucid investment was enormous and it was, you know, it was a big winner, you know, but that's changed considerably after an 80, 80% drop, but it doesn't matter because they're making a different kind of bet, a long-term bet. And I think it's a good one. And I think it's especially interesting too, when you have the lucid, you know, cause lucid is going to set up shop at the King of Bell, uh, economic center. Um, and they'll start rolling off 2025, I believe. Is that correct? I think so. Yeah. Production vehicles yeah, yeah. 2025 initially assembled in Saudi Arabia and then ultimately manufactured in Saudi Arabia. Um, you know, Saudi Arabia had also signed a joint venture with Taiwan's Foxconn, uh, this year as well. Foxconn technology group, uh, to produce the EV SEER. Uh, yeah, C E E R. I think it's and they're going to be, yeah. yeah, yeah, they're going to be doing it in in the King Abdullah Economic Center too. They just bought some property there, and we'll start that process. And you know, they hope to have uh, sedans that support utility vehicles available by twenty by twenty twenty five as well. So, you know, you might have a real concentration of EVs in an ecosystem there, right there on that west coast on the Red Sea in uh in saudi arabia uh, it's just really cool really cool yeah there's a lot of infrastructure they need to put in as well to m make it really happen obviously chargers and stuff like that but yeah i mean it is cool They're, they are serious about it um i believe sear is a pif and foxconn mashup <laughs> joint yeah. jam uh which is an interesting partnership as well so, um, yeah, there, I mean, you're right, Richard, you take this whole, just this episode as a whole, I mean, we're, we're starting to really talk about major investments in green energy, the uh, future technologies. So it's, it's, you know, this is not your grandpa's Saudi Arabia. So, um, <laughs> Richard Yella number four. That's right. That's right. Yep. Saudi's water and electricity holding company, Badil and energy company Aqua Power, which is getting a lot of press in this episode, have signed power purchase <laughs> agreements to develop the largest solar energy plant in the Middle East, Reuters reports. The 2060 megawatt solar facility will be built in Al-Shuaiba in the Mecca province <clears throat> and is expected to become operational by the fourth quarter of 2025. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, good news. They 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 got to start rolling these up. They you know this pairs with Aqua is also a deal. Actually, is also um, doing a. So I always they always it's funny they always say mega megawatt. You know, like two thousand sixty megawatt. And to me, that's two gigawatts. I mean, yeah, that's the way I think they should it. standardize that for. Yeah, yeah I agree. Um, deal is also doing uh, a one point five gigawatt project uh, in uh, in Sudair. Um, but, you know, they have to get on it. You know, the National Renewable Energy Program, Saudi Arabia's National Renewable en Energy Program, I mean, their goal is f just under 59 gigawatts of renewable energy capacity by 2030. Uh, and, you know, 23, uh, 20, actually 27 gigawatts by of renewable power capacity by 2023. And they're not going to get anywhere close to that. I mm -hmm. mean, they're they're at about one gigawatt, a little under one gigawatt total right now 
uh, and they've got things in the pipeline. But and I think we've talked about this before. It's not necessarily linear. Linear. I mean, the, these things will start stacking up, but they really need to start stacking up if they're going to hit their goals. Yeah, I think, I and it's, I think, I think, I think you you know we have to be careful. They may they they won't hit their goals. I think it's extremely unlikely they hit their goals, but you know they want to come close and maybe closer than they are now. Yeah. I mean, goals are not statements that you will definitely do it. They sort of have a built in aspiration. You said it earlier today, aspiration is sort of the name of the game in Saudi Arabia. And so, yeah. you know, there's, this is a little, they, they, well, and it also has moved, right, Richard, a lot. I mean, really since 2014, 2015, since you and I started really getting into this, the goalposts have moved a lot. They were way up there. It just makes so much sense is, is why it's fascinating. I think to us, um, so you'd like to see them, like you say, start to get some traction here because. Um, well, they, they need to start putting, they need to start, you know, uh, you know, setting them up and knocking them down. I mean, you know, and, and this is, and, you know, this is an important, this is an important uh, project. But again, they set out some big numbers. We don't expect them to hit the big numbers, but we, it'd be, I think it's important for them in terms of, you know, reducing their emissions and, and, and moving towards their 50% target of 2030 of you know 50% of renewable energy in in renewable energy you know they they need to start it needs to start adding up yep um number 5 correct yes saudi arabia is planning to build a 2000 meter high tower in the capital of riyadh if the plans go ahead it will be the tallest building in the world eclipsing the uae's burj khalifa in dubai which stands at 828 meters high the estimated cost is around $5 billion, according to a report by Middle East Business Intelligence uh, at, at Mead, M-E-E-D. A design competition is currently underway with participation fee of $1 million, the report said, citing sources close to the contest who have also disclosed that, se- disclosed that several of the world's leading architecture firms have already been invited to take part. Richard, this has your name all over it. You love these mega... <laughs> Mega attention headline grabbing uh, projects. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, this this one is interesting because I think unlike, uh, so let's call this a mega project. It's not a mega project, but let's call it a one of these like overly ambitious ideas or, or projects that sort of you would, you kind of expect from Saudi Arabia and you kind of expect from Dubai and, you know, some of these other places. This doesn't seem like a great idea because you don't really need it. Um, it's not going to create a multiplier on jobs or income. It sort of has a status symbol vibe to it. Um, we also know that Saudi Arabia has had a plan to have the world's tallest skyscraper in Jeddah, right. the Kingdom Tower, which was also the same name as the one in Riyadh, but looks nothing like it. That stands un- not completed at this time. Um, you know, they've got this design competition. It looks like you have to pay a million dollars to submit your design. There's so much to the story. And I, Richard, you sort of were like, maybe we shouldn't do this now. Let's see until it gets more real. And now that it's back in, I'm sort of looking at it saying this is sort of maybe not the best thing to be doing, but yeah, we, it, it was out and it came back in because something else was even more. Uh, anyway, yeah, it was a, it, it was it was it was a late returnee, but it's still it's still an interesting conversation in the sense mm-hmm. that you yeah. know this is. I don't like these because for the reasons you laid out, um, uh, you know, I don't know what you know what economic benefit that is. It's it's a, it's a vanity project. It's iconic, 
you know, it, it's in keeping with what they're trying to do with Riyadh. And, and we have, you know, Riyadh really would love to have the 2030 Expo. Riyadh, you know, the Riyadh uh, Royal Commission for Riyadh City is coming out with some amazing things. I mean, just pumping in money in Riyadh. And it's a it's growing like nobody's business. Uh, it would be it would be quite fitting, you know, in terms of you know as this evolves and they get to King Salman Park and Kadia outside the city and all these other things and the metro comes on and you know to have this just a, you know sort of you know gobsmacking you know skyscraper but two thousand meters high is just I mean I, I it makes me antsy I guess I'm a it just makes me antsy but again and and five billion you know. So, so we're early on this. It's 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 a report. It may never come to pass, like the Kingdom Tower in Jeddah, uh, which may still come to pass, but is has stalled. Um, and you know, they've actually been you know they've been pretty disciplined in their spending, and they may decide that doesn't make sense, and they don't need it. They also may decide that. Um... You know, they want an Eiffel Tower or an iconic building or structure that defines this whole era, this Vision 20 era and the economic reforms going on. As, as you were talking, Richard, I was I'm just sort of thinking about this. I really hope they do this. I really hope this goes through. I really hope that it is more than twice as tall as the Burj Khalifa in Dubai. That's insane. 2,000 meters tall. Insane. I, I, I'm not footing the bill for this thing. I'm not making the decision to build it. Uh, if they build it, will we definitely go check it out and be like, this is cool? Yes. So um, and we do that with the Kingdom Tower and obviously the Burj Khalifa, too, which is, in, uh, you know, just you go up there and it's my goodness. I, I, you know, I guess I guess I guess this lack of imagination when I think of something that tall, I'm going, how can it stand? How can it stay safe? What's the point is are we mocking God? Yeah, it's it's, <laughs> it's you know, it's it, yeah. Well, so let's, okay, so 5 billion bucks, you know, that's a lot of money, but it's also, you know, it will generate some revenue. You can get retail in there. We know that Prime, um, from speaking with Faisal Durrani um, of yeah. Frank, we know that Prime office real estate in Riyadh is basically impossible to come by. You've got KAFD there, which is almost done and will be completely full up with, with offices shortly. Maybe it's not a, I mean, first of all, it's not an efficient way of spending this money to create office space, but you'll get some of that money back. And I don't know. I just want to see it happen because I think it'd be cool. Um, but I, you oh, know. it would be cool to see some of the designs. That's for sure. Yeah. And the view from that, I mean, you'll probably be able to see oh, over the Red goodness, Sea into Africa. You know? And yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, let's see. Um, I don't know who would pay a million dollars to, uh, you know, to get in on it, a de design yeah. and yeah, to ante up. Yeah, to ante up. That seems like maybe that's I don't know. Maybe you won't get the best designs. If well, you that's do it a, that that's way, definitely but. a self-selected group. You know, it's not like everybody can just pony that up. But yeah, yeah it's interesting. We'll yeah. maybe we'll come. We'll put a pin in this. We'll come back to. We'll see come this, back to this. Happened. Yeah, maybe we'll relocate the nine six six studios <laughs> to yeah. the eight hundred and fifty fifth floor. <laughs> of the forthcoming yeah, conference up the building. Tower. Yeah. <laughs> um, six, right? We're almost... Uh, six? Yep. Oh, wait, this is me. I, I love this one. This is a okay. good one. This is me. Yeah. Eurofruit 
a leading fruit publication, which we have learned about this week. Report. I just want to say, can I interrupt this? Yes, one? yes, you can. You know, we do, we do the, um, <laughs> we do the thing. you know, obviously our daily newsletter, which is, you know, widely read 20,000 plus subscribers. It's, it's a big deal. Of course, we have to have a lot of subscriptions for this, right? You know, because we're sucking in input, content analysis, reporting from, a, you know, a thousand different sources. Which just leads me to say, I'm really glad we we kept our subscription to Eurofruit, because yes. otherwise, you know, we couldn't do this this yellow. Okay, but it's it's Eurofruit, but the URL is fruitnet.com, which I just well again, Eurofruit is a is one a, a, a demographic because there's there's Africa fruit and there's you know there's regional fruit reporting. <laughs> The, the fifth estate, right? The, <laughs> the, <laughs> the great equalizer, uh, the great media equalizer in the fruit industry, Eurofruit, a part of fruitnet.com. Um, <laughs> Eurofruit reports that, quote, Indonesia is the main focus of the latest marketing drive for Saudi dates, along with mm. Morocco, France, the UK, and the US, as the kingdom aims to be the first choice for date consumers globally. According to Abdullah Al Yahya, marketing department manager at the National Center for Palms and Dates (NCPD), Saudi Arabia alone produces more than 400 kinds of dates. There are more than 400 kinds of dates in Saudi Arabia, he said. But we are focusing on a dozen or so. We are trying to educate people on the different kinds available, how tasty, how juicy, how healthy they are. We are focusing on organic dates as a superfruit and a healthy fruit. Richard, we talked about this off the air, but. Saudis vastly prefer the dates that originate from their home region. They have an unbelievable bias in this in this uh, respect, which is really fun to observe and see. Well, it is interesting, and and they're smart to to, to try and pick a few, isn't it? Simply because market you know perceptions and and market understanding. Um, so globally, uh, trade and dates is worth about two point five billion dollars. Saudi accounts for. 324 million of that and they really want a much bigger slice and they probably you know they probably have the product that merits a bigger slice if they can market it better this is part of a non-oil economy this is part of a you know a, a general uh push to improve expand exports of all types um so it's interesting and and it, it's actually an interesting story and yet we laugh you know about the source and and that sort of thing but uh it is an interesting story and it you know saudi arabia again this is non-oil sector they're trying to move out on all 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 sections of it you got traction here you've got progress with the pif saudi coffee company and just other investments into the coffee sector seeing that start to really blossom yeah, I mean, you're not going to get one sector to replace oil. So, um, yeah. you know, if you do tourism, you do date export, you do all this other stuff, you know, downstream stuff from from oil. Mm. I mean, this is all part of it. I mean, so, yes, plus Saudi dates, absolutely fantastic. So delicious. Um, great gifts as well when you visit and bring back. They are good gifts. Um, and by the way, did uh, this was a good article. It's a well-written article. And again, mm -hmm. we, were, we were joking about Eurofruit. Um, uh, subsidiary of what is it? Fruitnet. Fruit. Fruitnet. Fruitnet. Dot yeah. com. Wait, sorry. What is it? Yeah. Fruitnet. Dot com. Yep. Yeah. Um. 
The biggest importer of dates globally is India at 300,000 tons of dates a year. And only 3.5, three to 5% of that is Saudi. This is what uh, Mr. Yahya was saying. So we, you know, there's, there's a massive market they want to grow into, but that's interesting that India is the biggest, largest importer of dates. Mm -hmm. There will be dates being served at my house for Christmas this year, Richard. Uh, I brought some good stuff back. Nice. Actually got some nice gifts as well that came back with me. Um, shout out to Prince Walid. Actually, those dates that he, from his date farm are outstanding. Awesome. Um, just so good. So there will be dates heavily involved in the Christmas celebration here, Richard. Um, <laughs> Merry a, Christmas to you. This was, well, yeah. Merry Christmas to you. This was a very good uh, episode. Uh, hopefully right now there will be some sort of Christmas song playing on the way out. Um, but Richard, thank you very much. Great interview today, and we will be back shortly uh, into the new year. 